All right. Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. And boy, do we have some bizarre and fascinating details this week. Am I right, Darcy? Oh, man, do we ever. Um, I am your host, Sarah, as you well know, and I've got Darcy with me. And we are in the midst of a historic time in the world, not even just the United States. As you all are aware unless you're living under a rock and you don't pay any attention to the news, we are currently dealing with the coronavirus, which is one of the largest pandemics recorded in our lifetime. And I don't know about Darcy personally, because I don't think she's quarantined. Are you quarantined at the moment? I am in the process of figuring out if I'm going to quarantine or not. Um, because the first case of coronavirus in the state where I currently live is actually in the city where I currently live. Um, and I was supposed to go on spring break starting this week uh-huh. um, to Birmingham, which also now has coronavirus. And both of my parents are um, a little bit older. And my dad recently just had like shoulder surgery and my mom's new husband also just had a surgery. So I'm kind of debating whether or not I want to go spend time with them and maybe put them at risk. I don't think I've been exposed, but it's more about like, protecting the older people in my life. They're, so they're I, at high risk. Yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of debating whether what I'm going to do right now. That's scary because the yeah. incubation period for this is like four, could be 14 days where you're not experiencing any symptoms. Mm-hmm. And then some people are completely asymptomatic where they're not they're not showing any symptoms right. at all, but yet they can still pass the, the, the symptoms and the virus and everything along to other people, especially high-risk patients. So exactly. be aware of that, folks. Um Know that even if you are not showing symptoms, you can still pass it on and you may not be showing symptoms yet uh, as well. So just be aware, be careful. I'm sure you've all read the news, you've all read it, but where I'm at right now is we are in self-quarantine. The way it has kind of worked out for us in this, I'm in California and the particular area that I'm in, everything has pretty much been canceled. Mm -hmm. Sporting events, um, we had sporting, like I'm part of volleyball leagues, they've all been canceled Mm -hmm. until further notice. And then the company that I work for has decided this is not worth it to risk this. Everyone is working from home until further notice. They anticipate this will be until mid-April. We are clearly putting this episode out on Sunday, March 15th. So that is, as of Sunday, March 15th, we are working from home until mid-April, which is absolutely crazy to me. I've never experienced anything like this in my lifetime. And then on Thursday night, after the last volleyball league that I had, I went to the grocery store thinking, okay, I'm just going to grab a few essentials. I'm out of toilet paper. Oh, no. So I was like, I'm just going to, well, I'm not out, but I have like two rolls left. So I was like, I need, I need toilet paper because this is going to last me for like a week. So I'm like, all right, let me just head on over to the store and just grab a few like staples, you know, some salad stuff of some meat, you know, just normal shopping. And I went at nine o'clock on a Thursday night. Okay. Mm-hmm. I walk into the store. Well, first of all, I noticed that every single parking spot is full at oh the grocery gosh. store at 9 p.m. on a Thursday. I had to park in the back. Okay. Then I get to the front of the store. There are no carts left. <sighs> and I'm like, what in the heck is going on? And, you know, I'd heard about hoarding and people buying the stores out and panic shopping and all kinds of other stuff in other states. But I just wasn't aware that it was a thing in California yet. But Mm -hmm. I got into the store. There was no paper products of any kind. No toilet paper, (laughs) no paper towels, no Kleenexes. No toilet paper was the biggest thing. And they don't know when they're going to get more in stock. It's completely gone. It's crazy. And then the meat aisle cleared out. Really? The beans cleared out. Rice cleared out. Pasta cleared out. Oh my gosh. It was crazy. And then like certain things in the produce department. Like the produce department looked pretty good on the overall. Like there was this cuz I don't think people are buying the stuff that can go bad. Right. I think they're buying the stuff that they can freeze or whatever. Yeah. But <clears throat> certain things were sold out like all the peppers were sold out. Oh. Um all the potatoes were sold out. Yeah. Like just random yeah. things. <laughs> just you think to yourself like wow. This is so crazy. Like, what would you do if, like, you were unable to leave the house at all? 
for 14 days. Like the way the self quarantine works is you, you're supposed to stay at home and avoid contact as much as possible, but you're not compelled or mandated by law to stay in your house. So you can still go out and go to the grocery store. Right. But this is unprecedented. This is absolutely insane. It's crazy because people like it's it's clearly like panic buying right like so people like the thing with hoarding toilet paper i don't understand people are clearly preparing to have to be in their house where they cannot actually leave their house for 14 to 28 days right so that's what they're preparing for but i don't know why you need 10 packs of 12 roll toilet paper that is not you will not go through that much toilet paper in that amount of time it's crazy I want to give the listeners a heads up. There will be profanity in this episode in both the telling of our main case for the day and because this is fucking crazy. I'm sorry. I cannot talk about these things without using profanity because I've never experienced anything like this in my lifetime. And honestly, I think these people that are buying up every single roll. I mean, I get it if you have five kids. Yeah, you're going to need to buy a couple packages because you've got five kids. And if you're home Because that's what you normally buy. You've got five kids. So, yeah, I get it. But it seems as though a lot of people are panic buying and buying way more than they need, which leaves nothing for elderly folks that have a hard time getting to the grocery store that are going to need these things over the course of the next 7 to 14 days. So either be aware of the elderly people that live around you and help them yeah. or don't buy. I, I feel like you can't really tell people not to buy all the toilet paper because somebody's going to always go buy all the toilet paper. But what you right. can tell them is to be aware of your elderly neighbors. And if you are going to buy up 25 packs of toilet paper, be generous, grab a couple rolls of that and take them down to the nursing center in your neighborhood or take them somewhere where you can donate to right. elderly people or people with special needs that cannot get to the store and get those items on their own. Be right. cognizant that you are not the only one in this world that needs those things. Right. And and also, I mean, be, so not only the people that are high risk, immunodeficient and elderly people, but also the people that actually do have it and literally cannot leave their house because that's endangering the public. Be mindful that somebody needs to get toilet paper and bring it to them. Right. So just be mindful because you, you just don't need that much toilet paper. And the, the other thing that's going around here, I don't know if it, you're, you're experiencing this, is people are buying stocking up on bottled water. There's no yeah. indication that the, the water supply is going to be affected. You know, so it's just... It's, it's, it's stupid. It's, it's out of panic. It is out of panic. You know, so I mean, it's just crazy. You can it's still drink crazy. your tap water, people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or like the water from the door of your refrigerator. You don't right. need to buy a bottle of water, you crazy right. asses. The water is not running out. So... Yeah. So like if just you're everybody, do these it things, is a very serious thing. I mean, we are dealing with yeah, a very serious pandemic. It's scary. We're not making light of the actual illness, but be mindful that you don't need to stock up on all of these things if you are not showing symptoms. Just right. be mindful. And if you are going to stock up, be aware of the uh, people that live around you that may need this as well. That you right. have taken these supplies from. Right. That cannot get more. Like you can't even yeah. order this stuff on Amazon right now. I know. My mom said that they're trying to charge her like $30 just to ship it. And my mom is a Prime member. Yeah. So the other thing is I've noticed some people talking about fears of the virus being uh, transmitted via inanimate objects like toilet Mm -hmm. paper or, you know, packages from China and things of that nature. People need to understand that this illness, the germs from this illness, the DNA, the cells from this illness are delicate. Yes, you can give them to somebody else by coughing or sneezing or touching surfaces and then having someone come touch it directly after. But this, the virus itself cannot live on surfaces longer than a few minutes. No, that's not true. So if that's you get true. a... No, if you get a package from China, it's from not going to live. It's not going to live long enough or if you get a package from the East Coast, it's not going to live long enough to give the virus to you. Going through the mail, you're probably not going to get it on a package, but it can live on surfaces for up to three days. So the way it not, it's not it going to, get, to me you're not going to get it through the mail, but a surface, like doorknobs, 
tables, things like that. It can live yes. on those surfaces. Wipe those surfaces down with like a Lysol Clorox yeah. pink. But I'm talking about receiving packages from someone in yeah. China or receiving packages from Amazon or whatever the case may be. It's not going to live on those sorts of surfaces. Yeah. But if it's like if that you're talking about opening a door or like flushing a toilet or touching things, yes. Be cognizant of that and keep yourself safe. Wipe those surfaces down or wear gloves. Yeah. Do not wash touch your, your hands. face. Wash yeah. your hands. Things of that nature. Yeah, that is obviously a no-brainer. Yeah. Like, I think everybody is is aware of that, but I have heard people talking and panicking about receiving packages and things from mm. other people that could potentially pass the virus on that way. What you need to be more concerned about is surfaces in your own immediate vicinity yes. or anywhere that you're touching and, and coming into contact with from here that other yeah. people around you may be touching and coming into contact with little things that you may not even think about. Like it right. always baffles me when I see people go into the bathroom and wash their hands after they use the toilet and then touch the doorknob on the way touch out. Touch the doorknob. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I've been kind of thinking about, and this isn't something that's been being mentioned a lot, but I'm kind of thinking, I'm going to stop using cash. Like, I don't use cash that often, but I'm thinking I'm going to not get cash, you know, and not use cash for a while because of there's already, you know, cash is already incredibly dirty. But especially now with as many people as that are going to touch those bills. Yeah. I think I'm going to kind of just like stay away from using cash and just use my card and like the self-swiping, you know. I have heard but. that people are some retail places are not accepting cash anymore for yeah. that exact reason. Yeah. Um, it's always safer to kind of do the Apple Pay if you can. Mm-hmm. Then you don't have to touch anything. You don't have to insert any cards. You don't have to just, all you have to do is hold your thing up. It scans it. Done. It, that's yeah. your safe bet, folks. And most of us have an Android or a, a Apple device that you can use. If you don't, then I guess you're kind of out of luck. But it is well, very, and there's very... a lot of places where I am that don't accept it, too. Yeah, so. yeah. So, But it is very easy to mm-hmm. load um, the app for either Google Wallet or Apple Pay. And connect yeah. it to your bank account. If you can do that, I would highly recommend it and suggest it. Just be aware that if you do do that, there are additional security risks that you need to be aware of. I.e., right. you need to have a security passcode on your phone. Because if anybody, if you lose your phone or whatever, people could potentially yeah. access your money, essentially. So yeah. just be aware of those additional safety concerns that you would need to take part in if you are going to hook up Apple Pay or Google Pay on your phone. Yep. So that's um, been our I think, corner. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, it just, to me, this is, I don't know if we're ever going to see anything like this in our lifetime, but what yeah. one positive note that I have seen on this is I do feel as though sometimes in, in trying times like this, that this can bring out sometimes the, the good in, in people as well. Like, for example, I saw an article on Yahoo about people in Italy are now singing in yeah, the have you seen and the because videos? Everything, everything is empty. The sound uh-huh. of the notes can echo off the cobblestones and the sides of the buildings, and the acoustics yeah. are just like absolutely amazing. Like, the videos are I, awesome. I can't, I can hardly yeah. believe it. I think it's absolutely amazing and such a yeah. wonderful thing that we would never notice or do if we hadn't been confined to our homes. Right. So I would encourage people that if you are quarantined and confined to your home, make the most of it. Make some fucking lemonade out of these lemons. <laughs> like write a book, take up a new hobby, learn how to knit, like turn the TV off and read a book. Like do oh something gosh. that is I'm going s- to enrich your life. Yeah. There are lots of things that you can do. You can explore in a stay at home job. There are hundreds of them. Find a new podcast that teaches you how to do something creative. Learn how to sing. Play a musical instrument. Do something that is going to make your life better because you have the time to do it now. Exactly. Yeah, I'm so excited about how many books I'm going to get read. Right? (laughs) For the next couple weeks. (laughs) Um, Let's go ahead and jump into the topic. I know that Darcy is extremely excited about this. Um, She has not been able to do any of the the main topics herself because of her chaotic schedule, and I completely get that. And she finally texted me and was like, can I do one? And I was like, hell yeah, Yeah. (laughs) let's do this. So without further ado, I will pass the microphone to Darcy. Yeah, so this was supposed to be a topical um, topic this week because we are gearing up for March Madness. That was supposed to start next Thursday and Friday. Um, But as 
a result of the coronavirus and player safety and safety for all the participants that would be going to the basketball games, the NCAA has canceled women's and men's basketball championships. So this is no longer topical, but it is still the time for basketball season. So that's why I wanted to do this. And so we are going to talk about the Baylor basketball scandal. Do you remember this? From 2003? (laughs) I do not. Okay. So if you do remember this, you may know some of the highlights that we're going to get into. But I even, as somebody who followed this thing when it was happening, there's a documentary that came out in about 2017 on Showtime that discusses this. The documentary is called Disgraced. That is where I've got most of this information. And it is so much more than what came out in the news. So that is why I wanted to talk about this. All right, let's do it. So Baylor, if you don't know, is a private school in Waco, Texas. They are a Baptist-affiliated school. It is a very large school. So it is, it is a private school, which means it is a very expensive school. I want to say it's maybe $30,000, $40,000 a year for tuition. Yes. So... <laughs> The basketball school, the basketball program at the time was not well known. They had a very good season this year, but they were not well known at the time in 2003. And they had a coach by the name of Dave Bliss. So, well, that's an interesting name. Yeah. So, we're going to take this. It's a porn name. It kind (laughs) of does. Yeah. So, we're going to kick this off in the summer of 2003. And so I have this kind of formatted in a timeline because that's how it's presented in the documentary. Every now and then I'll kind of jump out of the timeline. We'll jump back in, but I'll let you know when that happens. Sounds good. So in 2002, a player by the name of Patrick Dennehy was playing at the University of New Mexico. He was 6'9". He was a small forward center, um, or he was a power forward or a center, if if you're familiar with basketball. And by all indications, this kid was legit. He probably would have been playing in the NBA, right? Okay. So he transfers to Baylor to play for Coach Dave Bliss. Dave Bliss had previously been at New Mexico. He was not at New Mexico when Patrick Dennehy was there, but he had connections to the school. So is this he transferred there as a sophomore, as a freshman? Like what, where was he in his... Um, I want to say he was between a sophomore and junior years. Okay. So he still had so he at least transferred a year in two thousand. Yeah. So he still had um, because he transferred, he sat out for a year. So he transferred in two thousand two and then sat out the two thousand two two thousand three season. Okay. Summer two thousand three, he is gearing up to play two thousand three two thousand four ball. Right. Got it. So when he transfers, he instantly becomes very close friends with another player on the team, Carlton Dotson. Now, Carlton Dotson had um, kind of lost his place on the team. He was losing playing time. They were not going to honor his scholarship anymore. Oh. So um, so he decides he's going to leave the team. He is also recently separated from his wife. So he's also very young and married, recently separated from his wife. What do you mean he's going to leave the but team? They become, he's going to transfer to a different school or he's just no, not going to play anymore? It, it, it appears that he's just not playing anymore but attending Baylor still. Okay. So... Um, they become immediately best friends, and they don't live together, but Carlton stays with Patrick Dennehy quite often. So in June of 2003, there's another player who is recruited from a junior college. His name is Harvey Thomas. And when he is on his recruiting visit, Patrick is assigned as his chaperone. And they hit it off really well, and Harvey decides he's going to come to Baylor. It's a really good fit. And while he's waiting for his, like, student housing to be set up, he stays with Patrick for a while. Okay. So when Harvey gets to Waco, he calls his cousin, Larry Johnson, who is from Virginia, and he's like, check out this place I'm living, this school I'm going to. I'm really excited. Hop on a Greyhound bus and come visit. Okay. So this is all early June. So on June 6th, this is how quickly this escalates. Patrick starts telling people that he and Carlton Dodson are being threatened and that he feels uncomfortable around Harvey Thomas, but he doesn't want to say anything more than that over the phone. So he has a girlfriend who runs track at the University of New Mexico, and which is in Albuquerque, and they're still talking, obviously, because they're still dating, And but he's, he doesn't want to say anything over the phone other than he feels threatened. So he, he hasn't his told the police, girl- he hasn't told the authorities, he's just telling witnesses or people around him yeah. that he feels uncomfortable. Yep. 
Okay, got it. Yep, and he's telling like、mm-hmm. his high school friend and his girlfriend, and his girlfriend, being an athlete as well, says, "Hey, reach out to your coaching staff. Like this is part of what they're supposed to do for you in terms of support." So, on June seventh, because of fears for their safety, Patrick and Carlton purchase guns, and by all indications. Friends of Patrick say they had that he had never used a gun before. They'd never seen him in, do any have any kind of be in, in in an environment where there's guns, right? So Patrick lives in like a four person suite where it's like each people have their own individual rooms, kind of, and then they have like a suite in the middle, you know. Okay, that's kind of how this seems like it's set up. And Patrick lived with、um, another person who was not an athlete, but he was he lived with them. And this roommate says that prior to June of 2003, he doesn't believe that there were any guns in the apartment before Harvey comes to visit. Okay. And he tells a story in the documentary that one day he came home from work and the apartment deadbolt was locked, and he knocks on the door, and when it was opened. Patrick and Carlton were holding rifles,、What? and they were saying, "Don't let Harvey in. Don't answer the door. Don't let anyone in unless we're home." And this is a dormitory. It's like I think it's like、uh, on-campus apartments. So it's student housing. <laughs> this is not、It、a is private residence. How the hell do they have right, guns? That's how, that's how it、housing. appears. Okay, crazy. I, I, I don't know, man. It's Texas, though,、right? so you know.、Um, So on June 9th, Patrick contacts Abar Rouse, who is the director of basketball operations, and he had only started working at Baylor on June the first. So he's a week into this job, and Patrick t- contacts him and tells him he's scared. There's weird things going on. Things that if Abar knew, that he would be afraid as well. So he's saying、wow. all these stuff that like are kind of freaking him out, but he doesn't want to talk. Talking specifics. And on June 9th, the roommate says that he was at the apartment alone, and he gets a knock on the door, and he doesn't answer it at first because of what Patrick and Carlton have told him. So he looks through the peephole and he sees a tall, about six five African American man holding a pistol. So he assumes that this is Harvey because Carlton and Patrick have been telling him that they're afraid of Harvey. What? June 12th, Patrick calls his high school friend Daniel. To say that he and Carlton are going to come to his house. It's not clear if Daniel lives in Waco or not, so I'm not a hundred percent sure. But the friend offered to let them stay at his house for a few days, and he's like, "Then we'll go back to Waco, and then we'll go to the police." Okay, but they never show up. That's on June 12th. Okay. That's a Thursday, June 13th on a Friday. Patrick is not in class. All right. All right. June fifteenth, which is a Sunday, this is also Father's Day. Patrick's family starts getting concerned because they don't hear from him. He's very close to his family, his mother and his stepfather. He, they get start getting concerned because he would typically call them and t- say Happy Father's Day to his stepfather.、Oh、they don't get in touch with them. Okay. Over the next few days, nobody can get in touch with him. His girlfriend hasn't talked to him since the eleventh, so people are starting to kind of get worried. His girlfriend calls Carlton. And Carlton says, "I don't know where Patrick is." He says, "You know, we were scared. We were sleeping with our chairs up against the door so that no one could get in." And Carlton says, "I was so scared. I bounced and I went back to Maryland for the summer. I left Texas because I was so scared." Then Patrick's stepfather calls Carlton, and Carlton says, "Things were crazy at Baylor. I had to get out of there. And if I could talk to you in person, I could tell you what was going on." Again, this theme of nobody wanting to talk on the phone, right? I just don't understand how authorities haven't stepped in at this point. I mean, well, he's been missing since the eleventh. Nobody knows what's going on, so we're we're getting there, though. Okay, so his high school friend Daniel, that we talked about earlier, drives to Waco and has the apartment manager open the apartment, which is I didn't know is a thing you could do, and he finds the place dirty. And his he has two pit bull puppies that he had gotten earlier that summer. The puppies are unfed, and there's a bag on the bed that looks like it's kind of partially packed. So his friends like, okay, this was him packing because he was supposed to come see me. So presumably, this is the last time he was at the apartment was when he was preparing to come see me that night. Okay. So his friend leaves him a note saying, "Hey, I came by. I took the dogs because they hadn't been fed, and you know, give me a call when you get back." Okay, June nineteenth. His mother and stepfather report Patrick missing to the Waco police. He is Patrick is originally from Santa Clara, so 
His parents are in California. They're not nearby. So they report him missing to the, to the Waco police. June 23rd, the Waco police meet with Coach Dave Bliss. Bliss wants to sit in with the investigator on the players' interviews, and the investigator says no, because he's like, I want the players to be able to be honest with me. I'm not going to have you like sitting over my shoulder, making sure they're not saying something that they need to be saying. So during the interviews with the players, the investigator finds out that Patrick and Harvey were roommates with two other people. One of the other people was on the basketball team, one was not, and that Carlton Dodson had been staying there. Patrick and Carlton had found that some money was missing, about $300, and they believed that Harvey was responsible. Patrick and Carlton asked the coaches what they should do, if they should report this to the police, and this to answer your question. The coaches tell them not to go to the police. They want to handle this in-house. Because now you've got bad Division One basketball players getting in arguments with each other, accusing each other of stealing money. Now there's guns involved, possibly. They don't want this to get out in the media. All right? Okay. So assistant coach Doug Ash reports to an, the investigator that Harvey had been making threats that other players are telling them Harvey had been making threats and that he had spoken to Harvey about it. Head coach Dave Bliss says, I don't know anything about this. All right, this is completely in the dark. I don't know what you're talking about. Patrick's family and his high school friend Daniel start going on TV around late June, and they make it known that Patrick is missing. And on Larry King, Daniel says that Patrick had been paranoid right before he went missing because of threats that Harvey Thomas had been making. So he actually says the name Harvey Thomas on Larry King. So this is how the story goes national now, that this Harvey Thomas person has been making threats. Dave Bliss then makes public statements that he knows of no issues between the players, and he says that Harvey is a solid member of the basketball team. We support him. Nobody came to us with any issues, is what he says. Hmm. And in the documentary... Dave Bliss, who actually does appear in this documentary, which, as the story goes on, you're going to find the fact that he participated. Shocking. In the documentary, he says that reports of the threats are completely bogus. That was his word, bogus. And back in 2003, Bliss goes on ESPN and says no one said anything to the coaching staff, to any of the coaching staff, about any threats. And when you go back to the documentary, Abar Rouse is calling bullshit. He's like, that's bullshit. Nothing happens without the head coach knowing. Mm-hmm. Right? So investigators discover that Patrick and Carlton had recently purchased guns, like I said, and they would go out practicing shooting at this farm near campus. This is the farm where they had gotten the pit bull puppies. So they kind of made friends with the, the, the owners of the property and they were like, hey, can we shoot our guns here? And being Texas, the guy's like, yeah, sure. Come on out. Mm-hmm. So on June 26th, Patrick's Chevy Tahoe is found at a shopping mall. Do you want to guess Where? Where? Virginia Beach. What? And there's no license plates. Whoa. So when the investigators get to Virginia Beach from Texas to process the car, the car is completely wiped clean. There's no fingerprints, like not even Patrick's. Whoa. So the car has been wiped clean. And they're like, hey, because his best buddy Carlton lives in Maryland, investigators drive up to meet with him, and he agrees to the interview. So... During this interview, Carlton starts talking about drug use at Baylor. That's apparently this rampant use of basket of drug use on the basketball like what team. What kind of drugs? And he claims, a- well, he claims that Abar Rouse, the director of operations who started this job on June first, is using players to sell cocaine for him. What? And so when he doesn't want to talk about Patrick at, at all, this like Christian he completely school. avoids the subject. <laughs> at this Baptist school, oh yeah. So. So this guy has not even been in the job a month. And you have this player saying that he is being he's using players to sell drugs to him to to other like to the school. Yeah. So. So uh, he doesn't want to talk about Patrick at all. Like he doesn't he's like, I don't I don't have anything to say about it. And he kind of fumbles over his words. And when investigators leave the room, you know, because that's something you always see when you're, you know, watching like a crime show. Investigators leave the room, but obviously it's still recorded. He starts mumbling to himself. And oh they God. show this video of him, <laughs> and he's just mumbling to himself, but it's completely inaudible. You can't understand it's what he's like saying. It's not like the guy from The Jinx where he's like, I killed her. It's not. Her. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, it's not like the guy from The Jinx. It's like it's completely okay. inaudible. Like you, okay. can't, you can't understand a word of it. Um, so the investigators come back in, 
and they ask about, you know, tell me about Patrick. What's his personality like? And Carlton says, Patrick was, is, is what I would call a free-spirited person. Did you catch it? No. Patrick <gasps> was. Oh. And then he, then he catches himself. And so then the investigators say, when did you last see Patrick? And Carlton stops the interview. Oh, snap. So investigators take him back to his grandmother's house where he's living in Maryland, and he hires a lawyer. Lawyered up. Yep. So in early July, Abar Rouse is called to Dave Bliss's office to speak with investigator, the investigator, Bob Fuller. And the investigator's like, hey, are you using these players to sell drugs? Like he's going to go, And you know what? I am. You caught me. <laughs> well, he's like, he's like, he's like, what? What the fuck are you talking about? So Bob Fuller then asks if he's, you know, if he ever made any threats against Patrick or Carlton and if he would take a polygraph. So he agrees. He takes a polygraph and it is clear that this is all just completely nonsense. Like this is nothing just, to just do with it. Out of the blue. Nothing to do with this. Okay. So. At this point, Patrick's girlfriend decides that there need to be more authorities involved in the investigation. So what she does is she reports her own NCAA violations as a member of the track team at University of New Mexico and says, my boyfriend, Patrick Dennehy, has also been getting um, paid under the table at Baylor because she had heard that the NCAA will, will occasionally work with the FBI when, when it's necessary. Oh. So she then self-reports and says, me and my boyfriend, we're both receiving impermissible benefits. You need to look into this. And so that's how she gets more people involved in this investigation. Oh. So she tells the NCAA that she'd received money and that Patrick had received both money and a car. So that Chevy Tahoe was bought for him. Not surprising. And now you have, right, and now you have allegations coming out left and right. Patrick paid cash for his car. Baylor is paying players under the table, this, that, and the other. It's just, it's, it's a whirlwind of stuff coming out. And again, this is all happening within a month. Okay. So people start asking Patrick's stepfather if he's paying Patrick's tuition. And he's like, no, Pat's on scholarship. Turns out Patrick was not on scholarship. Oh, boy. So who's paying his tuition and all of his expenses? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's hop out of the timeline. And let's talk about Coach Dave Bliss. In the late 1980s, Dave Bliss was the head basketball coach at Southern Methodist University. So if those two things are ringing a bell, 80s and SMU, you might be thinking about the fact that Southern Methodist had been caught paying players, buying them cars, doing all this stuff for the football team. And they've been caught so many times that the NCAA finally said, you know what? No more football for you for a year. They gave them what's called the death penalty. Oh, boy. Okay. So so SMU then wants to look at how pervasive this is, because if it's happening at football, it's probably happening in other sports. We all know that. So they wanted to know just how permissive, how pervasive the violations were at the school. So they hire an outside investigator. The investigator contacts some basketball players who say everyone on the basketball team is getting paid. All the big names, they're getting paid. Specifically, one player tells the investigator that he wasn't getting paid, so he went to Dave Bliss's office and said, I want to get paid like everyone else. A few days later, this kid has a brand new Mustang, and he moved into a brand new, nicer apartment. Cut back to Dave Bliss in the the documentary, says, I don't know anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Hmm. So... (laughs) <laughs> the reason that this didn't come out at the time is because the NCAA had just handed down the death penalty to the football team, and they don't want to do anything more to the school. So they just don't do anything. And then Dave Bliss fucks off and goes and gets jobs in other universities. He moves on. So that's, that's what we know about Dave Bliss coming into so this. He's okay? undeniably shady AF. He is shady AF. Let's talk, let's, now let's hop back into the timeline. July 17th, FBI agent Timothy Spinagle, which is a super fun name, right? he gets a phone call that Carlton Dodson wants to make a statement and wanted an FBI agent present. So I have the recording of this. So if you want to pause your um, garage band, I'm going to play the recording. Mr. Carlton Dodson, do you understand that you're being reported? Yes. Why do you want us to come pick you up? What did you come here to tell us? There are many... Many of the minds that are after 
there are things taking place that are unexplainable. What kind of things? People are trying to take me out, man. People are trying to do things they've been trying since I've been in Waco. You want to talk to the Waco Police Department again? No. Not them. My faith is so strong, I have been taken over by our power. <laughs> My family is a family of prophets. You believe yourself to be a prophet? <laughs> much more than that. Much more than that. Something bothering you, Carl? All men should sin, but there is time to repent. Time to repent. Are you trying to do that now? I have. Any sin I may have committed. Yes. Is there something you want to tell us about the disappearance of your roommate? No, what that's in the hell? After this interview, his high school coach picks him up from the police department. And in the documentary, he says, you know, he was very concerned about his mental health at that time. And that Carlton Dodson then starts talking about angels, the devil, Jesus. He stopped eating. He would just pick up a broom and just constantly be sweeping around his house. Wasn't doing anything, just sweeping. And he started talking about how he needed to protect his family and said if he talked, that something would happen to his family. Okay. Grady Irvin Jr., who was Carlton's defense attorney that he hired back in Maryland, in the documentary says that every in every conversation that they had, it was obvious that he had issues with his mental capacity. Obvious. Which, from that recording, is seems pretty clear, right? So... July 21, Agent Spinagle gets a phone call from his supervisor to respond to a hospital in Maryland because Carlton is there and wants to talk to the FBI. And that's when Carlton starts talking about what happened with Patrick. On July 11th, Patrick asked Carlton if he wanted to go shooting. And so they head out to this farm where they practice shooting. They head out in Patrick's Tahoe. He says Carlton had a 9mm and Patrick had a 32 caliber. And he says when they got to the farm, Patrick pointed the 32 at Carlton and pulled the trigger, but it didn't go off. The gun misfired. And that when Patrick was trying to reload, two, two rounds fell out of the chamber. And then Pat Carlton says that he then said, Father, please forgive me. And he shot Patrick once in the head. The hell? So he says this is self-defense. Carlton then left in the Tahoe and drove back to the apartment. He changed clothes, threw the dirty clothes in the dumpster, and started driving to Dallas. On the way to Dallas, left him in the field. Wow. Yep. On the way to Dallas, he stops and he throws the 9mm in a lake, and then he drives all the way home to Maryland in the Tahoe. He says his uncle helped him hide the car and take the plates off, and they wipe it clean, and they leave the car at this mall in Virginia Beach. And so Carlton says that he was scared and he didn't know what to do. This is all self-defense. So he then shows agents on a map the area where Patrick's body could be found. And then Carlton is officially charged with the murder of Patrick Dennehy. Okay. So on July 25th, investigators search the area near where Carlton pointed out on the map. And they do find Patrick's body. It's very overgrown and it's a very big field. So they say the only way they found it is one of the investigators went out there and he smelled decomposition. And so he kind of starts looking around and he finds a bunch of unused, unspent rounds on the ground. Okay. And so he kind of cordons off this area because he's by himself, cordons off the area, calls to the county sheriff's department, this, that, and the other. They then search the area and find his body. So it isn't super obvious where he is. Because this is June and July in Waco, Texas, Patrick was very severely decomposed and he could only be identified through his dental records. So this was only three weeks in Waco, but still it was so muggy that his body decomposed. His cause of death was gunshot wounds, plural, to the head. Carlton said he only shot him once. He had two gunshot wounds. Yep. So Baylor put together a board of inquiry of Baylor employees to look into the allegation that Baylor basketball was paying players. Dave Bliss holds a press conference and talks about how he's followed the rules for 30 years. 
in his 30 years of coaching, he has never once spoken to an NCAA investigator, which is true because they didn't file charges against him at SMU, right? Okay, so that was clearly a lie. So in, back in the documentary, so one day a basketball player participating in this documentary, he passes, he, he tells a story about how he passed Dave Bliss in the hall and says, hey, coach, I'm really sorry you're going through all this because, you know, you just had a player miss, go missing and murdered and then another player just, you know, confessed to his murder and now everybody is accusing you of doing this all the wrong way and we know you're such a good Christian man, blah, blah, blah. Right. So <laughs> Bliss then takes him into the office where the player thinks he's going to kind of explain everything that's going on with this investigation of why these rumors got started about mm -hmm. paying players, this, that, and the other. Well, Dave Bliss starts telling this story about how Patrick was paying for his school. Remember? Because he was not on scholarship. So how is he paying for his school? So Bliss says that he had gone into Patrick's apartment and he had found drugs and rolled up money. So he's saying that Patrick was, was selling drugs to pay for tuition. And According to Abar Rouse at a coaches only meeting, Dave Bliss says, quote, if someone would just say they paid Patrick's tuition, I'd buy them a Cadillac. Shit, I'd buy mm -hmm. them four Cadillacs. And then he starts talking to the coaches about how Patrick was a drug dealer. Abar responds and says, we can't we can't operate like this. We can't do this. And Dave Bliss responds, oh, do you want to get fired? And so when Abar goes back to his office, he finds a copy of his employee contract on his desk and okay. highlighted is the section about how the head coach has the, fire, has the authority to fire assistants for any reason. At this point, Abar basically is like, you know what? I'm just going to start recording every conversation we have. I'm saving my own ass out of this. So on July 30th, in a meeting in Dave Bliss's office, Bliss writes on his whiteboard, quote, reasonable doubt and underlines it. Then he says, and remember, this is all being recorded, so this is a direct quote. He says, reasonable doubt is that there was, there's nobody right now that can say we paid Pat Dennehy because he's dead. Then he starts talking about how the lawyers involved want to account for this money that was paid to Patrick. So you had $2,000 for the down payment on the Tahoe and $7,000 for the tuition. So what I think, I'm, what I'm kind of getting from this is that there were student loans that were taken out, like financial aid that were taken out for Patrick, and seven th and it didn't cover $7,000 worth of the tuition. So I think that's what they're talking about covering here. So Bliss says, what we have to create here, pointing to the dollar amounts that he had written on the board, what we have to create here is drugs. And, accord and according to Abar, Abar Rouse, he says, this is the moment when he finds out Patrick's tuition is being paid by Dave Bliss. He did not know anything about this prior to that moment. Mm -hmm. He just started the job two months ago, right? So Dave Bliss wants three players to tell the investigators stories about how they had partied with Patrick and that one day he's bringing, he brings out this tray of drugs, pills, etc., and says, we're going to have some fun tonight and we're going to let the other guys pay for it. And that Patrick then pulls out a wad of $100 bills. Hmm. This is a coach making up the story for the other players to tell about their their teammate who was just murdered, okay? Abar, one of these players that he wants to participate in this is Harvey Thomas. So Abar asks Dave Bliss if Harvey's on board, and Bliss responds, fuck yeah, Harvey will throw himself on a grenade. That fucker will lie when the truth's easier. The reason is we did it for Harvey. That's why we're in this jam, is we stuck up for Harvey. I said there's no threats, and all those people got pissed at me. He's on national TV saying he doesn't know anything about threats. Wow. He's telling, in 2017, he's telling the Showtime documentary he doesn't know anything about threats. There's this recording of him saying he lied about that, okay? What? Just wait. July 31st, they are in the locker room with one of the other players. It's Abar, it's Dave Bliss, and this other player, Ellis Kidd, okay? Bliss starts talking, telling the story about the drugs and says, first of all, Dennehy's never going to refute what we say. If we say something about him, he's dead, so he isn't going to argue with me at all. Not to put words in your mouth, but if you said this single statement, I think it would help. And then he starts talking about how this kid, Ellis kid, needs to talk about how he's, how Pat was selling drugs. All right. And then Dave Bliss says, if we can prove that Dottie, and referring to Carlton Dodson, and Dennehy were selling drugs, I think we'll be out of the woods. 
And then Bliss says the lawyers are on their side, meaning Baylor's side. The investigators are on their side. So all he needs to do is just confirm what everybody else knows. He's like, everybody knows this this to be true. I just need you to help confirm it because that way we're going to be out of the woods. Everybody wants to believe this. All right. So Abar then goes to Ellis Kidd privately. And this is also recorded. And he says, you know, you don't have to do this. That when the investigators talk to you, I think you're under oath. And if you lie under oath, that's perjury. And are you willing to go to jail for Dave Bliss? And, you know, and the kid's like, no, yeah, no, I'm not. You know, I think he's just doing what he's got to do, whatever. And then Abar asks if Harvey Thomas said that he'd go along with it. And Ellis Kid says, yeah, Harvey's going to go along with it. All right. Mm-hmm. So on August 1st, in another meeting with Ellis Kid, and now the third player, Dave Bliss wants to get involved with this plot, R.T. Gwen. Bliss wants them to practice their story about seeing Patrick using and dealing drugs. So he's like, practice the story so that way you can sound fluid and doesn't look like you're just kind of making stuff up. He gives them a tape recorder so they can practice. On August 7th, a memorial service is held for Patrick in his hometown of San Jose. All right. So that's kind of the timeline just to bring you back. A kid was murdered. Okay. August 8th. Dave Bliss resigns from Baylor. In his statement of resignation, he says that during the process of the investigation, he was made aware that rules were broken. Not that rules, not that he broke the rules, not that he invented a story to defame a player who was just murdered. He was made aware that rules were broken. Right? So that same night, a reporter for a paper in Fort Worth that Abar Rouse had already kind of known and they had done stories together over the years, had a three-way phone call with Abar Rouse's attorney and Abar himself. And that's when this reporter learns about the tapes. Abar had given the tapes to his attorney and they were going to send them to the NCAA. And the reporter, they basically say, tell the reporter that, hey, once the NCAA gets the tapes, you're going to get them as well because we're not just handing this over to the NCAA to let to trust them to do the right thing. So the day before the NCAA meeting, the reporter goes to the attorney's office and she gives them the tapes. And then she says, hey, I need these back tomorrow because that's when we have our meeting. So she didn't make any copies. Apparently not. So the reporter Jesus, stays up all night. People? Yeah, right. So the reporter stays <laughs> up all night transcribing these tapes and is just mind blown about what he's hearing. And they play the recordings in the documentary, and it is just some of the most shocking things I think I've ever heard. So on August 16th, that's when you start to have reports coming out in the papers about the cover-up and that this had all been recorded by Abar Rouse. All right. So let's hop back out of the timeline. And in the documentary, it then cuts to Dave Bliss, who says, quote, They thought he was paying his scholarship from selling drugs because, and this is off camera, because he was selling drugs to all the white guys on campus, end quote. He thinks he's off camera. This is your jinx moment. He thinks he's off camera and not being recorded. And in in 2017, he still says that Pat Dennehy was selling drugs. Anyway. And a producer off campus asks, Patrick Dennehy was selling drugs? And Bliss responds, oh, yeah, yeah, he was the worst. And he says that the police knew all this stuff, and that's why they never charged him with a felony. But the media was too busy hanging him, Dave Bliss, for all any of that to come out. Let's talk about Dave Bliss's participation in this documentary for a second. All of his parts are filmed at the gym where he was currently coaching at the time in 2017, a school called Southwestern Christian University. He's wearing an SCU polo, Southwestern Christian University talking about how this kid's selling drugs to pay for school. During this conversation, same conversation with the producer, Bliss says that he settled with the family because it was easier to make it go away, but they also knew that he was selling drugs. And he says, quote, I got in with the pigs and I paid a price and the pigs liked it, end quote. Whatever that means. But And then he laughs about it. Okay. Top back into the timeline. Carlton Dodson on... October 28, 2003, Carlton Dodson's court-appointed defense attorneys in Texas file a motion for a competency trial. Obviously. Okay. He was evaluated and committed to a state hospital until he could be deemed competent. So you've got three psychiatrists or psychologists that evaluate him and determine there's evidence of psychosis, severe impairment, 
auditory and visual, visual hallucinations. And one report specifically said, quote, he was dribbling over himself and acting strange and would burst into laughter for no apparent reason. Mm. All right. In an updated report, one physician deemed that Carlton Dodson had a psychosis that was not otherwise specified. So kind of like a generalized anxiety disorder, but a psychosis that's not otherwise specified, but that he was competent to stand trial as long as he took his antipsychotic medication. Wow. One person. So you have three, three psychiatrists deem him incompetent, and another one comes back, not, not one of the three, another physician comes back and says, no, he'll be competent as long as we medicate him. Okay, so the evidence collected from Pat Dennehy's autopsy and the scene showed that this was not a case of self-defense, obviously, that Patrick appeared to have been shooting into the woods and that Carlton shot him in the head from behind. So he shot him once from behind and then the second bullet was shot from the side, meaning that Carlton shot him while Pat was already on the ground. Okay. According to the defense attorney who's going to handle the case, both of Carlton's defense attorneys also went to Baylor. They come to him and they say they want to make a plea deal for 30 years because it's making Baylor look bad. Oh, geez. The DA rejects the offer because in Texas, 60 years is equivalent to a life sentence. So he feels that 30 years is insufficient for first degree murder, presuming Carlton is found guilty and sane at the time of the crime, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So let's hop back into the the timeline. June 8th, 2005, five days before the start of Carlton Dodson's trial, the DA is approached by the defense attorneys with the offer that Carlton Dodson would plead guilty in open court and let the judge determine a sentence. So the original judge who was to hear the case had gone on vacation and a juvenile court judge who is another Baylor graduate was assigned to take over this guy's cases. So he's the one hearing this Carlton Dodson uh, Dotson case. Hmm. Interesting. So, Considering yep. they probably don't so, have as much experience with a capital murder case if it's a juvenile court judge. Exactly. So the judge who um, the judge who's hearing this case never asked if Carlton Dotson could comprehend the charges against him. And in Texas, this may be true somewhere in some other states or everywhere, I don't know, but they specifically said in Texas, the state's required to read a factual allegation uh, against Carlton Dotson, which the judge initially asked to be done, but his defense attorneys waived the process. Okay. And then Carlton Dotson pleaded guilty. Oh boy, I can see all kinds of appeal crap. Well, he, he pleaded. So... The so that's the end of the you know the guilt phase of the trial. So then they they take a recess or they you know they wait and they come back and do another a sentencing trial. Well, the pre-sentence report took a week to prepare, and apparently that was such a, sh- a quick turnaround that the DA was shocked by that. He said he's seen them take like six weeks. So, the judge sentences Carlton Dodson to thirty-five years out of a range of five to ninety-nine years. The judge sentenced him to thirty-five years just five years longer than what his attorneys originally requested. Mm-hmm. Remember, they went to Baylor, the judge went to Baylor, 35 years. Now, according to Carlton Dodson's family, he thought he was pleading to a deal where he would get out in five years. Oh, my God. That's what his attorneys said. That's what his attorneys told him when he pleaded guilty. There clearly was no deal, Right. Since that time, Carlton Dodson has repeatedly requested appeals based on ineffective assistance of counsel, right? Like you said. But because he pleaded guilty in court, he's lost his access to legal representation, state provided. Oh, boy. And in some cases, you know, you, when you plead guilty, you, you give up your right to appeal. So that is... Carlton Dodson's story and the murder of Patrick Dennehy. Carlton Dodson is currently serving prison in Texas, and he is eligible for parole, I believe, in 2021. Oh, that's coming up. Yep. So let's talk about a little bit of post. So he's not mentally ill. That's what the court found based on the opinion of one physician. 
This is just all over the place. I mean, you can listen to that recording and hear that he's clearly mentally ill. So that brings up a whole lot of questions because Harvey Thompson from the beginning has denied making any threats. Okay. The, they couldn't get the cousin on the phone during the filming of this documentary. The cousin hung up on them. So was this all Carlton Dotson's paranoia that started this whole thing about the threats and the stealing of the money and why they need to buy the guns? Was that all his paranoia, his mental illness? I just don't get why else he would shoot Patrick. What other reason could there possibly be? That's completely unexplained. We have no idea. I think he's very severely mentally ill. And it, to me, I'm not a, I'm not a diagnostician. I'm not, I don't have any, you know, ex- actual experience with psychology or psychiatry. It sounds like schizophrenia. Yeah. I mean, and isn't that generally the age where it first starts to appear? Yes. Yes. For most people, not in all cases. Yeah. But. Right. But, right. And it is very unlikely since he was A, deemed competent, B, in prison in Texas, it's very unlikely he's getting the treatment he needs. Wowza. So that is the Baylor basketball scandal and the murder of Patrick Dennehy. But there is more. As a postscript, prior to Patrick's body being found, the Baylor coaching staff gave Abar Rouse money to purchase a Greyhound ticket, and Abar took Larry Johnson, Harvey Thomas's cousin, to the bus station, dropped him off, with a ticket to head back home to Virginia. Before Patrick is found, the coaching staff's like, hey, this kid needs to get out of here. Why? Why was he asked to leave town? Why did mm. Baylor pay for his bus ticket? Mm-hmm. They didn't want... Completely unresolved. Don't know. Okay? This is before anybody supposedly knows Patrick is murdered. And they're trying to get this guy out of town. In the documentary, Dave Bliss still maintains that he never knew of any threats against the players, only that some stuff came out in the media after the fact, but he never knew of anything at the time. There's recordings of him talking about covering up the threats, right? And another one of the assistant coaches, Doug Ash, wrote on June 10th that Bliss had asked Harvey if Larry Larry Johnson had a gun, and Harvey denied it. And so when the producer confronts Dave Bliss with this, he starts acting confused about what the players talk, what the producer's talking about. And is like, this all started, you know, this all came out (laughs) after blah, blah, blah. I have no idea. Yeah, I didn't have anything to do with the situation. And then he immediately tells a story about hearing about threats and talking to the players about it. (laughs) So he denies it and then tells a story about how he did talk to the players about it. So he's shady. So when the documentary was released, Dave, Dave Bliss had written a, book called fall to grace and was making the speaking rounds <laughs> as a christian coach oh. following oh the release of the documentary in 2017 he resigned from southwest christian university and as so how many is this he's resigned from now right so far <laughs> and after march and as of march 2019 he was the athletic director and basketball coach at a k-12 prep academy in las vegas And on March 17th, 2019, Las Vegas local news reported that American Prep Academy had to forfeit two middle school basketball games because Dave Bliss had used ineligible players for middle school basketball. And as a (laughs) they need to just this guy does not need to be involved in any kind of sporting endeavors. This is just I mean, I'm just going to say this. I don't I'm not. I, I am clearly making a connection, but make of this what you will. Art Bryles, who was the Baylor football coach at the time of all the accused sexual assaults from the football team, also last year had to forfeit football games for using ineligible players. Something about, I don't, no, I'm not going to finish that sentence. <laughs> like, you'd think that he would, like, be like, hey, there's going to be extra scrutiny on me because I'm shady. So maybe I need to keep my nose as clean as possible. Like, come he on. He can't help it. He, he, they literally cannot help it. That's what I think. So as a final note, Abar Rouse, the basketball director of basketball operations who recorded all of this and made all of this known, w- currently works at a prison in Fort Worth helping inmates gain their GEDs. He has been unable to find a coaching job since it was made public that he recorded. That is yep. so messed up. Isn't that That is up? so messed up. 
I mean, it's good that he's like helping people that need help, but at the same time, it's like, really? So this Bliss dude who like yep. is shady AF and clearly has been resigned a thousand jobs and who has been caught cheating yep. on no, multiple occasions just can keep getting job yep. after job after and job. And nobody will hire him because, and they did, ESPN did a whole thing where they had coach Mike Shashevsky, Jim Beheim, and Kelvin Sampson, who was at the time at Indiana. And all three of them said if any of their assistant coaches ever recorded them without their knowledge, they would not be on their coaching staff anymore. He's the only one in this thing who did the okay, right so thing. So this just shows me that the problems are more pervasive oh, yeah. than we think and that the entire system yep. is so effed up that they will stick up for each other until they go when down, until they costs. die. They will stand up. For, that, Regardless of how shady and how much cheating is going on, they will stand up for each other. And this is such a pervasive problem yep. that everybody's involved. And Jim Beheim said in this little clip, he said, you know, he should have said to the coach, I'm not doing this, I'm out, I'm not participating in this, but he should not have recorded them. That's what he said. He was That's messed up. Threatened with his uh, job. It just it's disgusting. What else is he to gonna me? Do? It just it's like sporting this is why I don't think that athletes, professional athletes, should be making the kind of money that they do, because this creates this sort of a situation, this perpetuates this sort of a thing and this allows people to do whatever they need to do and to break whatever laws whatever rules whatever regulations for money i and it creates this this need for them to do that because they want some of that money and the only way to get it is to start at the bottom and work your way up to these professional athletes by cheating lying and doing whatever you can to get a slice of that cash i i think the players are the only ones that should be making that kind of money i don't think the coaches should be making this kind of money no, I don't think the players should be making the money either. Well, it's not it's fair. It's supply and demand. I get it if they have some kind of if they have some kind of skills that are more amazing than anybody else. Great, but I don't think that they should be making millions of dollars for it. It's ridiculous. Well, it's a it's a billion dollar industry, and so with supply and demand, they get to demand that type of money. I don't think I think the issue that you're talking about is the win at all cost mentality of coaching. I think coaching is where the money should drop off but i think co for like college and professional athletes but i think coaching for middle school and high school athletes should increase because that's where you're getting the fundamental moral compass of that we preach in athletics right you know athletes can make a athlete at playing sports can make you a better character they can make you a better person well those lessons are learned in middle school and high school we need to get middle school and high school teachers and coaches you know we need to 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 prepare them right yeah. so let's take a little slice of the money that we're paying all these professional athletes and trickle it down so the schools are getting this money i agree with you except for the athletes part i think the athletes should be getting paid i don't think the coaches should be getting paid this much i don't think the athletes should be getting paid millions and millions and millions of dollars okay maybe a couple million but not hundreds of millions of dollars it's ridiculous it's out of control and it just allows them to do whatever they want and feel like hey i have the money i can do whatever i want but where does that where's that reinforcement come from it doesn't come from the money it comes from the coaches when they're not making any money they're allowed to you walk on a college campus a big college campus with sports like where i went to school auburn athletes feel like they can get away with anything because they can because they are they they do get away with anything and everything it's not just Baylor. I'm not talking it's about not college just... athletes, per se. I'm talking about professional athletes. I know what I'm saying is that's where the lessons are learned is prior to being a professional athlete. And so basically, so... you're saying that these multi-million-dollar athletes, if they just had a better moral upbringing, that they would not be doing any of that when they're multi-million-dollar athletes. It wouldn't eliminate it, but I think it would make the problem. I think it would help for sure. No, I don't agree. I don't think they all of a sudden become like terrible people just because they make a lot of money. I think they I think being an athlete and being a very skilled athlete provides an environment where you can and do get away with anything. We pass football players, we pass them through middle school and high school and we send them to college when they can't read above a third grade reading level because nobody wants to interfere with their career of playing sports. The whole I mean, system it's, it's, just is after It's up. a whole I mean we could do a yeah, we could do a whole other hour on on that. But Anyway, but that is that is yeah. I think the problem is not just with the money. I think it's the I think it's the the teachers 
basically. Yeah. And this is parents and everybody else that's involved with it. But in any case, we're going to have to wrap this up because we're already at an hour and 10 minutes. Yep. Um, Yep. Interesting, interesting topic. And I, I really think that I haven't heard this one before. I haven't heard any other podcast do it. So, I mean, it's, and it's a perfect time to bring this up and talk about it, I think. And obviously it's something yep. that we'll, we will probably bring up at the show at a later date as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. If you have Showtime or sign up for a seven day free trial or whatever, watch this documentary. It's one of the most mind blowing things I've and ever we'll seen. And we'll put it's the links Disgraced. to the stuff for this in the show as well, in the show notes, um, if you guys want to look up a little bit more information about yeah. it, because it is so very interesting. And this is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We cannot emphasize enough how important it is for you guys to rate and review and subscribe because it really helps our podcast stand out from some of the lesser podcasts that you may not like as much as ours. So show us your love and we'll show you love back. If you have any suggestions for future shows that you'd like us to cover, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. You can also just shoot us an email if you want to give us a review or talk to us or chat or ask a question or give us a correction because we're not perfect. We're only human. Right, Darcy? Exactly. And our social media is? We are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So you can also find us there. Give us some comments, feedback there as well. And interact with us. We're more than happy to chat with you on social media as well as just standard emails. In the meantime... Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, Pat. Podcast peeps. (laughs) Stay safe. I I haven't (laughs) been drinking. Stay safe. (laughs) Keep it real and always of your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. Stay stay in quarantine if you can. (laughs) Yeah. Bye.